The writing was on the wall. It was going to be one of the most significant, career-defining, life-altering days in my life. But the writing was on the wall. My hopes and dreams were going to be crushed. I was nearing the end of my visa interview to come to the U.S. It was 10 years back in 2012, and it wasn't going well. In fact, it was a disaster. The writing was on the wall for me to see. Just to back up and give you some context on why this was important, I had graduated college, and straight out of college, I went and worked in, my, in a missions organization that my parents founded, so, and I loved it. I loved, I loved building courses for the Bible college, researching the Bible, and then most, more importantly, like traveling all around India, visiting mission posts, and just seeing the amazing work of God in different parts of India. I just loved it. But I felt that God wanted me to pursue formal theological education so I could grow in my knowledge of his word. And it was, it was a hard decision for me to make because I wanted to be back in India. I, wanted to, I just wanted to keep doing what I was doing, but there was this tug in my heart that God was pushing me forward, that he, he wanted me to go to Bible college. And it was almost serendipitous how I learned about Moody Bible Institute. I was actually reading a biography of D.L. Moody, and I was fascinated by this one man who, with the power of God, was able to impact a city. This one man just left a huge mark, and we still have the Moody Church. We still have Moody Bible Institute in existence today because of what one man did in the power of God. And I was reading this biography, and I saw that there was a college named Moody Bible Institute, and I felt I wanted to go there because this guy was great, so his college might be great too. So I applied, and I got accepted into Moody. But the final hurdle to get to Moody was to get through this visa interview, and those were hard things. It was hard. It was nerve-wracking. So I set up, you know, I went online, booked my appointment, and then I had to gather a bunch of documents. In fact, I had a folder that had probably a couple of hundred pages of documents to hand to this guy, you know, who's going to, like, authorize my visa. And it was the day off, and I was nervous. And it was a huge event in our family. I remember the morning off, my parents, my brother, they wanted to support me because they knew how big a deal it was, because it was life-changing. This was something that I'd never done before. Leave the comforts of India, leave my life in India, travel 8,000 miles, probably to Chicago. I don't know anyone here in Chicago. So it was a huge deal for me, and my parents supported me. So the day off, we all hopped into our car, we went to this U.S. consulate where, they, you know, where you have your interview and then they issue your visa, and it was heavily, it was, it was almost like a fortified castle sort of a feel. It was like, it was heavy security presence. There were these railings that went up like maybe 15 feet, so you can't climb over it. And you couldn't take your phone. You had to leave your wallet outside. So I gave all of that to my parents. They were waiting for me in a restaurant nearby. They were anxious what was going to happen, and I was anxious too. So I go in, get through security, which was much more extensive than what you would do, you know, if you were to hop on a plane. And then they take me to this room. 
Apparently, this was where you get your biometrics done. I didn't know that. So they take a photo, a digital photo of me, and then they ask me to like keep my fingers on this fingerprint scanner to scan each of my fingers. And it was, it was funny. I was so nervous that my hands were shaking, and I was trying to like keep it there, and they're like, it's, it's okay, it's okay. So I had to literally like hold my hands to, you know, to get through that fingerprint scanning. And then I was led into a courtyard to this huge hall, much like our DMV where they have these counters and, you know, and then, you know, you get a ticket and then they call you. So I'm seated and my number is called. So I walk, to, walk up to this consulate, uh, consular officer and this is this Indian American guy, probably in his late 30s, early 40s, uh, definitely a second-generation immigrant because he didn't have an Indian accent at all. So he goes, um, he gets all my documents, and then he asks, so, you know, why do you want to go to the U.S.? So I go, well, you know, I've been working in this missions organization, and uh, I really feel like I want to, like, grow in my knowledge of the word, so I actually want to go to the U.S. And he goes, what? What? What are you talking about? And I was, I didn't know what to do. Imagine, this is a life-defining interview, and the guy, the first thing, the first words that come out of his mouth in response to my answer is, what are you talking about? And he goes, so, so what, did, what do you do? Well, I work in, my, in a missions organization. We plant churches in parts of India, and, you know, and we teach the Bible, and I want it. This is literally like how I'm like stammering and trying to like answer this question. He goes, that's stupid. Why would you even do that? And I go, man, I did not expect this at all. I thought Americans were really courteous people. What is going on here? <laughs> so he, he asked me a couple of questions, and it was, I tried to answer my best. It was the same thing over and over again. He was literally scowling at me. He didn't know. He was not convinced of what I was going to do because, you know, they're looking at us as potential immigrants who want to, like, come and, like, settle down here, which is what eventually happened with me, I guess. But, uh, but they don't want you to get here, you know. So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, like, look at the flimsiest reason that they can possibly get a hold of so that they can stop you from getting a visa. And he asked me another question, and I tried to get him, get him one of like, my supporting documents that I had. And he goes, I don't need your documents. <laughs> like, literally, he was scowling at me. And so by the end of this 10-minute interview, I go, you know what? The writing is on the wall. It's over. You know? And like I said, initially, I wasn't that enthused about leaving India. But then just going through the process of like, applying to a college in Chicago, just looking at, looking at Chicago, pictures of Chicago and what life was going to be like, I had started dreaming. I really wanted this now. But I knew that if God wanted me, this was up to God because I had messed up, literally. Well, I, I don't know what I could have done differently because I gave him all the right answers that I needed to, but this was it. The writing was on the wall. So here am I, almost, you know, resigned to the fact that I'm not going to get my visa, and this was it. And I had told God, I said, God, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that you're leading me this way, 
And the only way that I'm probably going to know is I'm just going to apply for this visa one time. If I don't get it, I know you want me to stay here in India. If I do get it, you know, it's your will for me to like go to the United States. That's how it's going to be. So I'm resigning myself to the fact my countenance is down. I'm almost on the verge of tears. And, I'm, and then he goes, we'll come back in three days to get your visa. <laughs> and I go, what? Because you got your visa. Come back in three days and get your passport. And I go, I just like walk off <laughs> right after. I'm like, thank you. And I walk off. And I couldn't imagine what had happened. The writing was on the wall, but the sovereign ruler of the universe, I guess, changed it. And here am I 10 years later, still in the United States. Well, the past four weeks, we've been on this series called Unshaken from the book of Daniel. And today we're continuing by looking at a fascinating story in chapter 5, a story where there literally was a writing on the wall. In fact, that's a phrase that we commonly use in English, and it means to say that something bad will happen soon. You know that something bad's going to happen. And this phrase actually has its origin in the chapter in the story that we're going to look at. So turn your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to go through the story here in this chapter, so we'll be reading a lot of verses. So, um, yeah, follow along with me. So the story begins with Belshazzar, the king, throwing a lavish party. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So imagine a huge banquet hall that was bustling with music, dance, and an open bar, and in attendance were all, were all these amazing nobles and lords, the greatest people in Babylon assembled in one banquet hall, celebrating and reveling. A couple of observations here before we move on to verse 2 that's on your screen. First off, it's easy to notice that the king here is not Nebuchadnezzar. So the past four chapters, the past four weeks, we've been looking at King Nebuchadnezzar. And now we move on to the next king, I guess. His name is Belshazzar. And there's been a lot of controversy about the identity of this king. In fact, critics were quick to pounce on the fact that there's no, there was no record of this king. So obviously Daniel, or you know, the author of this book, made it up. But starting in 1914, that was when the first archival text was found that made a mention of this king. And since then, 37 texts prove, attest to the identity of this king. Again, goes to show that archaeology is a relatively young science. So, you know, and we might have to encounter that in, in apologetics. You know, people, we're always looking, or, you know, people are always looking for ways, oh, this is not attested in history. Well, not yet. Not yet. There's so much excavation that needs to be done, and there's so much truths that can be, that need to be unraveled. But whatever is there, attest to the historicity of the Bible and, and also to this uh, passage. Now, Belshazzar was, was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. So his father was King Nebon... 
hard to even pronounce his name. His name is Nebonidas. Nebonidas. I got it. And after King Nebuchadnezzar's death, there was a lot of upheaval and turmoil in terms of succession, and that's something that happened. So it took, so if you look at the end of chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar's story ends to chapter 5, there's a 23-year gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's not something that we would like, you know, kind of expect when you're reading your Bible. You know, you always think it's almost like chronological, so that's the next thing that happens. But there's a 23-year gap between the end of chapter 4, which happens around 562 B.C., to when Belshazzar throws this great banquet. So now the scene of this party also kind of betrays the gravity of the situation. Belshazzar, the king, is throwing this party when the city of Babylon is surrounded by the Persian army. They are about to be invaded. They're about to be conquered. And and what does Belshazzar do? He throws a party for his nobles and his lords. And there's a couple of reasons why he would do that. One is, is because he wants to boost morale. You know, he wants people to keep fighting. You know, he wants them to stay till the end. But it could also have meant a show of strength. Because Babylon was the greatest city in the ancient world. This was the greatest empire that history had known up until that point. And Babylon was amazing. I have some, have some facts here. The city was impregnable. Just the wall that ran across the perimeter of the city was 56 miles long. It was 80 feet wide and 320 feet high. Imagine walls 80 feet wide and 320 feet high. This city was impregnable. Couldn't be defeated. No wonder Belshazzar is there having fun while the Persian army is knocking at the gates of the city. And a Greek historian writes that this city probably had food supply for for about 20 years. They were self-sufficient for about 20 years, so they didn't have to even go out. And they had the river Euphrates run right in the city, so they had ample water. So they had food, they had water, their defenses were great. Nothing was going to bring this city down. And Belshazzar doesn't seem concerned by it. And it goes on as we read verses 2 to 4. It's going to be up on your screen. It says, While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So again, in a show of strength, the king orders to bring the vessels that they had conquered from the temple in Jerusalem when they had conquered the nation of Judah. This was a show of defiance. 
Belshazzar is not just proud of his city or his food supply. He is waving his fist at God. He's just, and people knew what it meant at that time, bringing the vessels that were consecrated and separated to be used in a temple. He was profaning those vessels by toasting his gods, asserting the superiority of his gods over the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh. He was saying his gods were more powerful and all was well even though the Persian army was at the door. And here's what happens in verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Wow. You can imagine the deafening silence now in the room. The music, the dancing, the reveling would have probably stopped when they saw this huge hand just come through and start writing on the wall opposite the king and his nobles were seated. That is crazy. It says the king is now weak with fear. The guy who was just proud and pompous about his own capabilities is now weak in his knees that his legs are shaking and he cries out loud for like magicians and the wise men to come and interpret what was written on that wall. A commentator on this passage writes about the significance of this hand. He says that the casualty counts were made by cutting off the right hands of, of all dead. So that's how you count how many people you were able to kill in battle. So it was almost like a, a sign of victory. You know, it's your spoils. This is how victorious we were. And the effect of this mysterious hand appearing might be similar if the head of a decapitated victim began to speak. So imagine that if a decapitated head starts to speak. That's the kind of terror that this hand on the wall is eliciting from the king and his nobles. So the king calls for all the wise men, the astrologers, the soothsayers, and he asks them to interpret the writing, and he promises them great rewards. And much like the previous chapters in the book, the wise men, they can understand what's in the wall, but they don't know what it means. So the king is all the more terrified. This incident, startling incident, reaches the ears of the queen, the queen mother, and she hurries to the banquet hall because she knows that none of the wise men could interpret this, this, uh, this writing. And this is what she says in verse 10. It's going to be on your screen. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Baltasar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So the Daniel seems to be the man for the hour. He's the man of the hour. He's the man in times of crisis. So the queen says, hey, call Daniel. He might be able to interpret what your wise men, the most learned men in, your, in the greatest civilization at that point of history couldn't do, this guy can do. So Daniel is brought before the king, and Daniel is not a young teenager that we have encountered in chapter 1. He is now at least 60, and he's in his 60s, so he is wise, and it seems as though he's not part of the inner circle of the king anymore, just as he was during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel comes, and Bel Belshazzar is actually very rude to Daniel. It says, he says, are you that Daniel who's one of the captives from Judah? He's reminding Daniel of his place. Daniel is not, even though he's been in power in the Babylonian garment, he says, hey, aren't you one of those captives? And we see also that Daniel is also antagonistic, you know, towards the, the, towards the king. He kind of like begins in a combative mode. And here's what he says in verse 17. So we're going to read a bunch of verses here, if you could follow along with me. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, give Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of all the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Who, whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. We saw this passage. We dealt with this passage last week uh, in chapter 4. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he, wish, he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, 
And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and have found wanting. Perez, which is, uh, which is the plural of the word huparsin, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Belshazzar thought that he couldn't be defeated, that he couldn't be conquered. And you could say, you know, there was, there was substance to what he was trying to say. Babylon, as I mentioned, was the greatest civilization that mankind had ever known up until that point. And he felt that they could not be defeated, that they couldn't be vanquished, and, and yet he was because he defied to go against the sovereign God of the universe. According to Greek historians, if you're wondering how the, the Medes, how the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, according to Greek historians Herod, Herodotus and Xenophon, the Persian army cut a bunch of channels on the river Euphrates and diverted the water to the marsh, to marshes, and then soldiers were able to walk under the walls and enter the city. In the Nabonidus Chronicle, which is an ancient Babylon cuneiform text, it, it dates this incident to October 12, 539 BC, and describes how this happened. Just like that, one of the greatest empires in world history was defeated. So what's the main point of this story? If we could boil down the story to one lesson, what would it be? Here it is. God is able to humble even the most powerful people who persist in pride. God can bring the loftiest rulers who continue to exalt themselves against him. He can bring low the loftiest rulers. He can um humble the most powerful people who persist in pride. The key to unlocking the story is, is, is actually found in the last verse of the previous chapter. And that verse kind of like serves as a bridge to chapter 4 and 5. As I mentioned, there's a 23-year time span between these two, two chapters. And later on, as we, as we look in the book of Daniel, there's a lot of material that, in terms of chronology, should have come in between chapter 4 and 5. So there is a reason why the author of this book places these two accounts close to each other. It's almost a tale of two kings. And this is what the last verse of uh, chapter 4 says. Nebuchadnezzar, after he is restored, he, 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 he says this. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, 
and his ways justice. And he says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So, uh, so chapter 5 is almost an exhibit A of, hey, God is able to put down those who exalt them in pride. Here you go. Here is a king named Belshazzar who defied God, who was proud, and who thought he was, his city was impregnable and he was undefeatable, and God put him down. And that's, if there's one thing that I want you guys to take home today, this is that God is able to humble even the most powerful people and persist in pride. So what does it mean for us today? We're going to quickly look at four lessons from God's dealing with an unrepentant ruler. I'm just going to whisk past these four points really quickly so that we don't go, hey, this guy was a ruler. It doesn't apply to me. I don't rule. I'm not in power. This doesn't apply to me, so it's not going to work. Well, God's word is applicable to us right now. And that's what we're going to, going to, going to look at today. Firstly, rest in God's power over ungodly authorities. This is one of the recurring themes in the book as well. We see God is completely in control. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he realizes that and God restores him. And we see here a king who defies God. And he does that, and he does that. His pride is manifested in a, in a couple of different ways. We saw he was proud about his city, about his resources. And then we see him defying God by bringing the vessels that were consecrated to God and toasting his own idols, his gods. He doesn't acknowledge the living God, and God has the final say. He lets Belshazzar know who is, that he is the real superpower. We don't have to do a lot of uh, searching in world politics to, to come up to come with the conclusion that much of our leaders are metaphorically and literally shaking their fist at God. The very people who have been entrusted with ensuring justice, they are purveyors of injustice. I was just, you know, I was looking up at some facts. Of, you know, I'm very interested in Indian politics, obviously, and I was looking at the number of criminal cases that were against what we call members of parliament, which is akin uh, to the senators here in, in, in the federal government. So I was looking at, we have 543 of them, we call them members of parliament, and 43% of those who represent us in the parliament of India have criminal cases against them. And a lot of them are serious cases. So these are the people who are in power. So imagine the concern that they would have for the people that they're ruling. In fact, the way we vote is, 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 is funny. You know, we kind of like vote for the lesser of the two evil. We're like, oh, this guy has kind of murdered five people. This guy has like mur not murdered anyone. Maybe we can, you know, we know he's corrupt, but let's vote for this guy as opposed to this guy. I am not kidding. I am not kidding here. That's how it works. That's, that's the way we think about, about our voting system. And you see, it seems as though the wicked are prospering, the ungodly are ruling. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? 
God is in control. And a lot of times, our timeline for justice is, is, is not in tune with God. We, we really want fire to come down from heaven right now, and I would really love that to happen with even what's happening in the global stage right now, which is this humanitarian crisis that has been caused by one man. And we really want that. And we can rest in the assurance that God is sovereign and his power extends over ungodly authorities and he is going to humble even the most powerful people who persist in pride. Just you wait. That's all is what we got to do. And I think this, was, this passage for me personally was, was such a, an eye-opener because I've been trying to figure out how, how do I, what do I do? How do I process what's happening in Ukraine? And it was God teaching me, well, you can pray. You can pray that I would humble this ruler. And that's a tangible action item for all of us today, I guess, you know, to pray that God would humble these ungodly authorities who do just the, who resist God and go up against him. Secondly, give honor to God and not lifeless substitutes. We see Daniel in his speech, he says, well, God was the one who raised up Nebuchadnezzar. God was the one who put him there. God was the one who took him down. And he said, you knew it. And here's your judgment. But Belshazzar didn't realize that. He gives credit to his worthless idols. He puts his trust in, in his own resources. If God made someone great, then they were great. If God humbled someone, they were humbled. But pride, most of the times, does not allow us, doesn't allow us to see reality. It, it leads to a false perception of ourselves, our abilities, and our accomplishments. And we see that with Belshazzar. And I love this verse, um, verse 23. Let me read that for you. But, but Daniel says, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. We're not immune to this. Obviously, I don't think any of us worship idols of wood, stone, silver, but there's a majority, a majority of, world, of people in the world today do that. You know, 1.2 billion, I think, I think a billion people in India worship idols. And you can go, every street in my city has a shrine, has an idol that's made where people like stand and worship right in public view. We don't do that. But we can always worship the idol of self. We can elevate us. We can think that whatever we have achieved could be because of what we have done. It's our ability, our wisdom, our strength, our hard work, and not give God the honor that is due to him. That's always, it's an always a temptation for us. 
we need to realize that we did not get here where we are by ourselves. It was because of God. And, and Daniel says that it says, God holds your breath in his hand. That's how powerful he is. Just a week ago, um, I woke up to the news that one of the greatest ever cricketer, you know, I'm a huge cricket fan. If you guys don't know, I watch a lot of it. I was even trying to follow cricket just before church started. India is playing uh, Sri Lanka today, so I was trying to you know, catch the scores just before church. I just woke up to the news that he had passed away. This guy, extremely fit, 52 years old, sudden heart attack, dead. And in fact, like the night before, I had just read a tweet from him, and you, you don't expect that. This was almost like the death of Kobe Bryant, where like, it just, you know, I, I was a huge Kobe Bryant fan as well, and it just took me, I was taken aback. You, you just don't expect things like this happen. You expect an athlete like Kobe Bryant or Shane Wan, that's his name, to live until he's 70, he commentates, you know, he's got, you know, great insights on cricket, I love to hear him, and he's gone. God holds our breath in his hand. And that's not something that we should be afraid of. That's a source of our com comfort because God is in control and he has us in his hands. And nothing can happen without his permission. Give honor to God and not lifeless substitutes. Moving on. Don't wait for the hard way to learn God's lessons. God had expected Belshazzar to learn from Nebuchadnezzar. This is worse, and it says, you, Daniel said, you knew this. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet you defied God. Now, we might, we might wonder, how could he know? Well, first of all, you know, Belshazzar is considered to be Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and he was in the court of the king as early as 560. So Belshazzar died when he was 562 BC. So he was, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar died when, um, you know, at 562 BC. And Belshazzar served in the courts of the king right after. So he was, he definitely had access to Nebuchadnezzar's court. His father was an official there. So he saw firsthand what happened to this king and doesn't learn from it. He makes the same mistakes. And I think a lot of our, uh, you know, a lot of parents can relate to this vibe. We don't want our kids to make the same mistakes that we did. Well, I can say we because now I'm a father as well, so I guess I can say that. We don't want kids to make the same mistakes that we've done. You know, we want, we want them to learn from us. But sometimes, you know, just have to learn it the hard way. But God, we don't have to wait. God says, you know, we don't have to wait for the hard way to learn God's lessons, you know. God wants us to see the horrible consequences of sin and run from him. These examples might be from public figures, leaders who fall, but they might also be those who are closest to us where we've seen the fallout of their bad choices and decisions. And there's a plethora of stories in the Bible where we can learn what pleases God and what doesn't, and we don't have to make the same mistakes and learn the hard way. So let's respond to these gracious lessons. Finally, be the kind of person who is called on in times of crisis. 
Okay, one of the recurring themes in this book is whenever there's a crisis, Daniel is the man for the hour. People run up to him. And you could argue based on the king's knowledge of Daniel that he's no longer part of the inner circle of advisors, but his exemplary life, his reputation preceded him, that the queen comes and says, there is this guy who can help you interpret this passage. Daniel's life and testimony stood out at a crucial moment. We worship the same God who Daniel worshiped. We have the Holy Spirit of God in us. And I've noticed time and again, when there is a crisis, a lot of people who don't know God tend to come to believers for help. My, um, my mother is actually a first-generation Christian. She's a Hindu convert, and she's one of like nine, uh, nine siblings. And we have a bunch of, she has a bunch of nieces and, and nephews, and they're all Hindu. So she is the only one who is who knows Jesus, and she's been trying to evangelize to them in any way possible, trying to share the good news of the gospel to them. And she's been persistent. However, until now, not yet, we, none of them have given their lives to God. But you know that when there is a crisis, they will always call my mom. Like, Can you help us with this? We're going through this. Can you pray for us? You know, it's, it's so interesting. Like you don't even believe in God, but you want us to pray, you know. And that's a great way. It's a great way to build those relationships to, to get people to know the one true living God. And we have that opportunity as well. We have the same spirit that worked in Daniel, the Holy Spirit in us as well. And we can make, our lives can make a difference to those around us. That's one of the, I feel like one of the biggest takeaways for me. I want to live my life in such a way in which people are drawn. People know that when there is, when there is a time of crisis that they could always come to me and I'm able to help them. So as I conclude today, from this story, we've seen that God is able to humble even the most powerful people who persist in pride, and this truth has real-life implications for us. And I pray this morning that we would internalize this truth and look at God for who He is, the sovereign ruler of the universe, and He has everything under His control. Would you bow your heads and pray as we, as we close this morning? God, we just want to thank you for who you are. We just want to thank you for your word. We just want to thank you that you are the sovereign ruler, the Lord of this universe. God, and we thank you that we can rest in the assurance that you are in control, that even though there might be confusion and chaos around us, and even though we can't make, of, make sense of some of the things What's going on today, God? We know that you're in control. Father, we just pray that you would help us to, to internalize this truth, that we would see you for who you are. And we will honor you, Father. We would rest in your power over ungodly authorities. We would give you honor. And we 
would not have to wait for the hard way to learn your lessons, God. And we just pray that you would help us to be a person who's called upon in times of need. Father, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word.